More music featuring Welsh singers? That can mean only one thing. Welcome to the Welsh cast. My name is Jamie. You didn't know that Bonnie Tyler was Welsh, did you? Well, you never can tell what you're going to learn at the BHP. But now we've got to turn Bonnie down, otherwise we're all going to start singing along. So we're now at the point where Rome has withdrawn from Britannia, and more importantly to our story, from Wales. And today we're going to talk about the impact that had upon the people. I can guess what you're thinking. Who cares that Rome withdrew? Their legacy was violence and subjugation, their accomplishments were a pale reflection of the Greeks from whom they imitated, and they were largely devoid of any serious innovation. And to that I say, preach on. However, with the benefit of hindsight, we can look at the withdrawal of Rome and say, don't let the door hit you on the ass on the way out. But at the time, this was pretty catastrophic. After all, Rome had been working for centuries to destroy the Welsh sense of self and replace it with Roman cultures and beliefs. And they did a pretty good job at it. And much like how Africa found itself in a bit of a rough spot following the European colonial conquests, the period after the Roman colonial conquest of Wales was also pretty rough. So let's chat about what we know of what happened. But as always, let me remind you that this story is a bit of a mess because our sources aren't consistent, some of them are pretty nutty, and others are secondary at best. So just keep that in mind. Now, I'm probably not telling you anything you haven't already figured out while we've discussed this period, but the couple hundred year stretch of the sub-Roman period is a critical time for Britain. This is where the cultures that will grow to define the island really begin to take root. It's also the moment where the division between England and Wales emerges, and that division still survives to this day. The collapse of Roman power in Britannia meant different things for different regions, and also for different class levels. In the East, we start to see a shift over time towards a Germanic way of life, and a steady encroachment of the Germanic kingdoms into their neighboring British communities. But that wasn't consistent throughout Britain, and things in Wales were quite different. The reality is that not all people were equally prepared for life without a central foreign authority, and differing reactions to the loss of imperial authority could well have caused tensions between the communities. Now, the vacuum that was left by Rome was certainly taken up by other individuals within Britannia. Davies theorizes that Wales was more comfortable with independence than their neighbors to the east due to reduced Roman influence, and therefore the Welsh were more likely to draw up leaders from the periphery rather than from Roman institutions. However, evidence for this is shaky at best, and when looking at the surviving lineages, it seems like most of the kingdoms had some level of connection to the old Roman order. And keep in mind that even with the lineages we have available, this isn't a clear picture because even if they're accurate, all we're seeing are the lines that survived into the 10th century. The dynasties that were ousted, annexed, or destroyed wouldn't have been listed, and chances are their only remaining legacy can be found in the occasional stone inscription. So it's all a bit unclear, and all we can say for certain is that there were some communities, and indeed some members of the communities, that were more comfortable taking a centralized role than others. And the first individual we hear of who takes this role is Vortigern, who might have ruled over the Welsh border territories due to the fact that the ancestries of the Kingdom of Poes trace their lineage through him. Now why take on such a central role? As we've been learning about in Season 2, sub-Roman Britain shattered into numerous kingdoms. So why try and unite them into a single political body? What would possess a person to take on that level of responsibility? 
Well, when you think about it, Britannia now had several centuries of experience in being unified. The idea of ruling it as a single authority probably seemed natural to those in the community who were fully Romanized. However, as with any situation without a clear line of succession, you're going to get all manner of people who think they could do the job pretty well. So it's probably not too surprising how it all fell apart. You had too many cooks in the kitchen. But the point is, if Vortigern really existed, his instinct to rule as an overking in Britannia isn't that nutty or unreasonable. And tradition holds that Vortigern granted the Isle of Thanet in Kent to the Germanic settlers in 428. Though remember that these dates are soupy at best. So if he did exist, and he was a king in Wales, and he did hand over the Isle of Thanet, that should give you an idea of the scope of his power. Moreover, if he did exist, there's a good chance that he saw ruling as his birthright as a Romano-Briton. That's something to keep in mind as we go forward in our story, as we'll start to see more tensions between the Germanic and British kingdoms. The British communities almost certainly saw themselves as the heirs of Rome, or at the very least, the heirs of Roman Britannia. That some barbarians would come over and try and impose their rule must have been galling, to say the least. So the fact that they fought and that they pushed back against the Germanic communities really doesn't surprise me at all. And don't forget that just because Rome pulled out, it doesn't mean that everything went straight to hell. There were still communities. There were even towns and cities. When St. Germanus visited, which was after Rome withdrew, he didn't find a bunch of people living in caves afraid of the sun. The record of his visit, you might recall, discussed communities and towns, as well as dodgy miracles. And actually, Wales was probably doing better than you might think in the sub-Roman era. For example, we found pottery and glass from the continent as well as from the Mediterranean at a fort in Dinas Poes, which can be dated to about 500. The fort was probably occupied by an unknown chieftain, so I doubt that everyone was doing this well. But finds like this have been uncovered at a variety of other digs as well. So we can be relatively certain that in the hundred years following the withdrawal of Rome from Wales, all contact wasn't severed and at least some of the Welsh could still have had some of the comforts of Rome. Though it's not really as great as you'd think, because from the record it looks like shipments from the east might have only come in every decade or so. So there were links, yes, but they weren't as close as the old days. Now, like with the rest of Britannia, coins vanished along with Rome, and as a consequence, the barter economy seems to have made a marked return. And when we look at digs and what was available, at least on the material levels, the people seem to have been pretty poor. How poor, you ask? Well, it looks like they were worse off than before the Romans came along, so they actually went backwards. For example, metalworking did continue to a certain extent, but it failed to capture the skill and quality of the Celtic pieces that were created four to five centuries earlier. And here's the brutal part. It's also been estimated that the population in Wales in 500 was actually smaller than it had been prior to the Roman invasion. So the BC levels of population were probably larger than the post-Roman levels of population. Roman occupation and the later withdrawal really did a number on the Welsh communities. But despite that, the trappings of Rome persisted, which, of course, reinforced the separation between the West and the Germanic East, which pretty much wanted nothing to do with Rome. And unlike in England, the social stratification also persisted in Wales and continued to shape life. Gildas in particular gives us a solid window into the levels of stratification in the West, 
He speaks of excessive luxury and tyrants and of wealth that seems completely out of place when you compare it with the lifestyle that we see in the East. And as we go forward, we're told of a military culture that sounds like it started to get a bit out of hand as well. Gildas tells us of how the kings of the Welsh territories exalted their military companions, quote, to the stars, end quote. And Egodathan, a 7th century Welsh poem, tells of how these leaders used their military power to mark their superiority. Which actually sounds rather Roman, to be honest. Don't forget that by the end of the Western Empire, the signs of power weren't civilian in nature, but rather they were militaristic, reflecting the shift in power towards the military and away from the civilian government. Well, it looked like that persisted in Wales. We also start to hear about excessively ornate weapons and armor, about expensive and carefully bred horses and intense jewelry and glassware, and interestingly, we also hear about men riding into battle with beautiful golden torques and coats of mail. Now, how awesome is that? The torques have actually come back. So that's kind of neat. But on the other hand, think about the expense of all of this material. The coats of mail alone would be eye-wateringly expensive. So these leaders were pretty damn rich. And of course, they also were keeping personal poets and slaves. So it really does sound like there's quite a lot of concentrated wealth at the top levels of society. Though one problem we run into is that the Roman custom of burying bodies without grave goods persisted in Wales, and that's really deprived us of a key source of information, which is why we have a clearer image, though still murky, of what was going on in the English territories than we do in Wales. But despite the lack of resources, the picture that we're getting of Wales in the sub-Roman era is one where the old order survived, you know, in one way or another. I mean, even the Roman concept of citizenship and official offices apparently persisted, since we have a late 6th century inscription that was praising a man who was, quote, a citizen of Gwyneth and a cousin of Maglos the Magistrate, end quote. Now, magistrates were a Roman office, yet they were still apparently active in North Wales. We also see references to Roman names within Welsh families, and we know that some of the Welsh spoke Latin in addition to British. And literacy continued among at least some of the population based upon the inscriptions that we found. But it wasn't just literacy, it was also education. I mean, look at Gildas. Here we have a guy writing in the middle of the 6th century, approximately 540. And it was clear that he was given a good late Roman education in grammar and rhetoric while living in sub-Roman Wales. So it must have been persisting in some way. Now, it's hard to know how far that might have spread into the surrounding population, but at least some of the upper classes following the withdrawal of Rome were probably Romano-British in culture and were probably speaking Latin and ruling their kingdoms in a vaguely Roman way. And at least some of them were still classically educated. But for as Roman as some of this looks, there are major bits of Roman culture that vanished. Like I mentioned earlier, no one was minting coins. Also, Roman official insignias, such as the crossbow brooch, just disappeared. Furthermore, at the same time, the ancient culture started to get reinforced. So not everything was Roman. We've already mentioned the Torques, but you also have names of some of the other kingdoms like Dumnonia, which we now call Devon, but at the time also covered Cornwall, and you had Demetia, which became Devid, and you had Gerothen, which became Lothian. Well, they were all pre-Roman Celtic names, and it seems like they found a resurgence in the post-Roman era. 
And like Eastern Britain, the West was also dealing with barbarian settlers, which we'll be getting to very soon. And those settlers also integrated with the local population, just like the Germanic settlers, which accounts for why we find Ogham inscriptions in areas settled by the Irish, for example. And actually, the presence of Ogham inscriptions is interesting because they indicate that A, the members of the upper echelons of Irish society were settling in Wales, and B, they were attaining positions of power within the local British communities, and were actually kind of fairly high up on the social strata. But we'll get to that in a bit. And it wasn't just the Irish who were settling. The Votadini also relocated to Wales. And interestingly, there's a grave included from that settlement period that looks rather Scottish in style and shape. But the point is that you had a shift in population throughout Britain, and the East was taking on a more Germanic tone, and the West was taking on a more Celtic tone. So it wasn't all just Roman. And again, just like in the East, the arrival of settlers doesn't prove displacement. In fact, displacement almost certainly didn't happen. And this is really clear in Wales, where we have inscriptions of Ogham side by side with Latin. So these communities were mixing, and households could well have needed to be bilingual, speaking both British and Irish, or maybe even trilingual, where they were speaking British, Irish, and Latin. And of course, with all these different cultural shifts and responses to independence, will come differing societies. And predictably, those societies, because they're a little bit different, will come into conflict from time to time. So let's briefly talk about some of those communities to put some of this into context and give you a sense of what was springing up in Wales. And let's start with Gwynedd, because it's probably our best evidence for what an early Brythonic British kingdom might have looked like. Archaeological evidence suggests that they were a rather cohesive community, and it seems like they were holding on to the trappings of the Roman past in one way or another, because we have stone inscriptions that describe the roles of individuals in Roman terms, such as medicus, or doctor, and magistratus, or magistrate. So on that level, they look kind of Roman. They were also not cut off from the world, even though pop culture would have us believe they were. For example, the archaeological evidence suggests that the old western sea trade routes that were so important in the pre-Roman era following Rome's withdrawal. And it wasn't just the western routes that opened up, but inscriptions found in Gwynedd suggest that the Welsh were aware of the political changes all the way as far as the Eastern Roman Empire in the mid-6th century. And they were still aware of the latest fashions, at least when it came to inscriptions, as late as the 7th century. And I'm going to say that again because it probably is challenging some of your assumptions of sub-Roman Wales. As late as two to three hundred years after the withdrawal of Rome, Gwynedd was still so connected to the territories of the old Roman Empire that they knew what was going on in Byzantium and were still fashionable, at least as far as inscriptions were concerned. There are also artifacts that demonstrate that they had trade from Athens, the Black Sea, and Bordeaux. So all of this together suggests that, at the very least, they were linked to France, North Africa, and the Mediterranean. And Gwynedd has an interesting backstory based, at least in part, on the fact that the ruling dynasty traced its ancestry back to Canetha of the Votadini. And here we're going to have to tenderly tread into an area that has quite a bit of debate over it. So let's talk about what we've been told, and then we're going to break it down part by part so you'll know why there's such a big debate on it. So what we're told is that Canetha, who was the grandson of Paternus of the Red Cloak, led a band of Votadini warriors. And the Votadini inhabited the region along the banks of the River Forth. 
So Kaneda, at this point, was already an experienced war leader, thanks to his fights against the incursions south of the Wall. But how he gets involved in our story is that he was brought down to North Wales, along with his eight sons and one grandson, and he was tasked with fighting the Irish, who had invaded the region. So the Vododini and the people of Gwynedd joined together under Kenetha's leadership and engaged in an extensive campaign that went as far as southwest Wales and drove the invaders out of Gwynedd. And there was much rejoicing. And then it looks like they stuck around, or at least Kenetha and his sons and grandsons stuck around, since the ruling dynasty linked themselves to him. So that's the story. Not a lot. Yet there's some interesting things to unpack in there. First, the grandfather, Paternus of the Red Cloak, is quite an interesting character. That title should have caught your attention because Roman officers wore red cloaks. So the question is, was his grandfather a Roman officer? Maybe. And then you have the fact that we're lacking a reliable date for when this was supposed to happen. And that's quite a problem, and as a consequence, there's a lot of argument about it. And there have been two main camps that have appeared. One dates the Vododini being brought down by Magnus Maximus, due to the fact that he pulled out much of the protection of Wales in 383. The other thought, which is the more popular view, is that they were brought in by Vortigern at around 440. And if that's true, then Kenetha's grandfather might have been operating at around the same time as Magnus Maximus. Maybe even serving him. And I'm inclined to agree with the latter theory, since it seems like it would be in keeping with Vortigern's attempts to use Roman methods of bringing barbarian mercenaries to do the bulk of fighting whenever possible. But this issue isn't settled, and I'm not sure if it ever will be. And that's not even getting to the biggest problem. The biggest problem is that Kenetha might not have existed. You see, the problem is that Gildas doesn't mention anything about Kenetha, and he doesn't appear until about 800. So there's an argument that it might just be a myth invented to support the rule of a new ruler, King Murfin, who also was from the line of the Vododini. And a lot of this theory comes about due to the fact that Gildas just completely doesn't mention Kenetha. Well, you might be saying, well, Gildas had a lot to cover and not a lot of time to do it, so maybe he skipped over the genealogy in favor of slinging mud. And that's a fair point, he seemed to do that a lot. But the problem is that Gildas really, really hated Maelgwyn Faur, who was apparently a descendant of Kenetha. And given that Gildas seemed to enjoy trashing both the ruling leaders as well as their progenitors, don't you think he'd want to weigh in on how far the line of Kenetha had fallen due to the sins of Maelgwyn? It just seems like a natural story to be told, and completely in line with the way Gildas liked to write. But whatever the case may be, according to tradition, the Irish were pushed out of North Wales thanks to the intervention of Kenetha, a name that survives to our modern day, incidentally, as Kenneth. And then he became the founding member of the royal dynasty of Gwynedd. And for what it's worth, there's a slight bit of evidence of Scottish cultural influence in Gwynedd in the archaeological record. So that's Gwynedd. Next up, Duffid. Okay, so here we have another story that involves the Irish causing trouble. So we have Irish legends that suggest that the tribe of the Daisy migrated to Wales, probably at around the point that Rome was withdrawing from Britannia. And this would be in line with the Irish settlement and colonization of Devid, which is supported also by the archaeological record that shows an influx of Irish artifacts and Ogham in the area at around this point. So the Irish legends might be correct. Now by the time of Gildas, 
David was definitely an organized kingdom, and it was ruled by Gwythafir, who's also referred to as Votoporix. And he was described as the tyrant of the Demete by Gildas, which actually, when compared with how he described other leaders, sounds almost positive. So Gwythafir was actually kind of a big deal, and there's a stone that has inscriptions both in Ogham and Latin discussing him, and describes him as a Protectoris, which is actually really interesting. First, because you have both Ogham and Latin inscriptions, which we've already discussed before, but that's a pretty big deal in itself. But second, because it's describing him as a Protectoris, what that's doing is it's suggesting that one of his ancestors was a member of the emperor's retinue, and then eventually, that position became hereditary over time. And that makes sense when you think about it. The systems in Wales that were set up by Rome didn't just vanish because Honorius told the Brits where they could shove it. They were still there in one form or another. They just weren't being supported by the central government. So retaining Roman terms for individuals in positions of power and then passing down those titles in a hereditary manner seems like an entirely likely outcome, especially if a foreign culture, such as the Irish, moved in and integrated, but didn't fully understand how the Roman titles worked. But here's where it gets even more fun. If you look at the timeline for when the daisy might have migrated, it lands at right around the same time as Magnus Maximus. And Davies suggests that Maximus might have permitted the daisy to settle in Devid, and that one of Gwythafir's ancestors might have been a member of his retinue. And support of this theory is the fact that in the lineage of Gwythafir, we find, you guessed it, Magnus Maximus. So Divid is a bit more Irish in style, but is also holding on to the old Roman titles, and has a dynasty that traces its rule back to Magnus Maximus. So that's kind of fun. Now if we look a bit north and east, we find the kingdom of Poes. And it's been suggested that the word Poes is actually a derivation of the word Pegus, which has all kinds of meanings actually, and draws from the same root as pagan. However, in this context, However, in this context, it might be connected to its meaning in the late Western Empire, where it meant a very small administrative district. And for the most part, it seems like Poes might have just started out being the hinterlands of the Cornovii, and then later spread its zone of control to include parts of the Severn Valley. But at the start, it might have been a very small administrative district. It might have just been a little Pegasus. Now, tradition holds that Vortigern founded the ruling dynasty of Southern Poes, but that's hardly solid evidence, especially since we aren't even sure if Vortigern really existed, and if he did, if that was his name, or if it was just a slur. But theoretically, their dynasty is traced back to Vortigern, and it might have started out just as a little tiny administrative district. Now, Poes was doing okay for the most part, and well into the 6th century as it expanded, its major city, Vericonium, persisted as an urban center and might have actually been the capital. Now, do you remember our discussion of Rexeter and how following the withdrawal of Rome, that city persisted? It was the one that had that big religious building that replaced where the basilica was. Well, back in Roman and sub-Roman days, Rexeter was called Vericonium. So that was the same city. So things were hanging on in Poes. And while Poes did have its fair share of troubles, it looks like it was at least spared conflict with Irish raiders and settlers due to the fact that it was a landlocked kingdom. So way to go, Poes. Now what about the kingdoms to the southeast? Well, Gwent was the most Romanized area of Wales, which is ironic since it was the territory of the Silures, 
who were among the most rebellious of the Welsh tribes. But hundreds of years had passed, and apparently the combination of keeping the territory heavily militarized for a very long period, as well as granting a civitas, that was Caerwent, well, it did its work. And now everybody was kind of Roman. And speaking of Caerwent, it continued to be an urban settlement for about 100 years after Rome withdrew. And it was so influential that the kingdom of Gwent drew its name from that civitas. Basically, the way it broke down was you had Venta Salurum, which basically meant the Fort of the Saluri. And eventually a market town grew up next to it because that's where all the money was. And that market town became a major city in Wales. And like we talked about earlier, that happens all the time because you have a lot of soldiers who have a lot of pay and they want to spend it. Well, that market city was known as Caerwent. So you had the economic and military center of the area being Caerwent and Venta Silurum. And over the years, the name caught on and morphed into the kingdom of Gwent. Caerwent, Venta, Gwent. And the kingdom of Gwent is pretty old, dating back at least to the 500s, since we hear about it from St. Samson of Dole. Apparently, Samson's grandfather served the kingdom of Ventia, which would later be called Gwent. But despite the influence of Rome upon the population, their history as rebels and warriors seems like it was still close to them. For example, the founding member of their royal house was a man named Caradog. And I've told you about Caradog before, but you might not remember him right away. However, if I gave you the name that the Romans gave to him, I think it'll jog your memory. Do you remember Caractacus? the rebel who fought the Romans and then was later sold out by Cartamandua? Well, Caractacus is a Roman understanding of the British name. In Welsh, it's Caradog. So even though four centuries had passed, the memory of Caradog's fight against the Roman encroachment must still have been strong enough to maintain the prevalence of the name. Now Davies points out that it's also possible that the name might indicate that he was a member of a dynasty from the Silures that ruled prior to the Roman invasion perhaps even directly related to Caradog himself. But the reality of it is that there's no way for us to prove that with our current level of understanding. So essentially, that's just a wild theory. Now, the thing about southeastern Wales is that it wasn't a unified kingdom for a while. Gwent was only part of it. It seems like the southeast had quite a few individuals who clearly thought they'd make excellent kings. And as a consequence, we had quite a few kingdoms down there. For example, you have Erging, which was to the northeast of Gwent, and actually, that seems like it was one of the more powerful regions in southeastern Wales during the 6th century. Another was to the west, and that was the Kingdom of Glywysing. And by 600, it would have a dynasty that was so powerful that the ancestors of Merig Aptudrig, King of Glywysing, would rule in the southeast for 500 years. Merig apparently got around. And actually, it's suggested that the descendants of Merig were the ones who ended up unifying Erging, Glywysing, and Gwent into a single kingdom, the Kingdom of Morganwig, otherwise known as Glamorgan. So they were no slouches. And, of course, there are claims that Magnus Maximus is lurking somewhere in their royal lineage as well. I swear, he's like the Woden of Wales. Your great-grandfather is Woden? Well, that's cool if you're into that kind of thing, Unferth. But mine was Magnus Maximus. Maybe it was like a Dark Ages mic drop. But the truth is that we can't know how responsible Maximus was for the formation of the Welsh kingdoms. But we can be relatively certain that the people felt that he was rather critical. And that fascination with Magnus Maximus continues into modern histories, with historians stating that he could even be considered the father of the Welsh nation. 
And honestly, that argument isn't crazy. Magnus Maximus wasn't all about top-down totalitarian leadership in Britannia. In fact, he acknowledged the importance of local leaders and basically broke up a lot of the top-down control, which could well have opened the way for independent political bodies. After all, once leaders became more confident in their position and abilities, and became knowledgeable about the importance of local rule, and more importantly, they got used to calling shots on their own, well, it isn't that huge of a leap for them to take the reins themselves once Rome pulled out. So like we talked about at the top of the episode, different communities probably reacted to being released from Rome and obtaining independence in different ways. Those communities and individuals who listened to Maximus might have had a bit of a head start over the more subservient regions. And in that case, they definitely would have owed him a great deal. And those ruling dynasties, though they might not have been related to Maximus by blood, might still have seen him as an adopted father of the family in the old Roman way, sort of like a tribute. It's possible. And this isn't just me sitting here speculating. This is what some historians who specialize in this area have theorized. And actually, in point of fact, I rarely go out on a limb and speculate on my own, unless it's really obvious, like when I talk about hipster emperors. In general, I leave the speculating to the experts from whom I draw. Okay, but before we stop for today, I think it's important to remember that the Welsh kingdoms weren't the only British kingdoms south of the Wall. Britannia south of the Wall was, for the most part, held by the British when Rome pulled out. I'm trying to keep this series as tightly focused as I can, but I really would be reticent if I didn't mention a few important British kingdoms outside of Wales that will impact our story, and even provide some of the earliest examples of literature in Welsh. However, this isn't a complete list of kingdoms, and honestly, I doubt that we'll ever have a complete record of all the early British kingdoms from this period. I'm sure at least some of them have disappeared. So the first kingdom for us to keep an eye on is in the north, and that's Strathclyde. And it's centered on Dumbarton Rock at the River Clyde. And then to the south is the Kingdom of Regid, which is probably centered at Carlisle, and that kingdom would end up giving Bernicia and the Sons of Ida a whole bunch of trouble. Furthermore, this is also the region where Canetha and his Votadini probably came from. Then a bit farther south from that, we have the Elfed, who are also known as the Elmet, and that kingdom stretched across the Pennines. And finally, down to the Cornish Peninsula, stretching across Devon and Cornwall, we have the powerful kingdom of Domnonia, and their king, Constantine, who Gildas was, ugh, less than enthusiastic about, but we'll get to him later. However, like I said, this isn't a complete list. For example, in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, we have references to all sorts of British kings that were killed in battle, and we know very little, or more often nothing, about these kings and the kingdoms over which they ruled. Remember King Natan Leod? He was the guy who was killed in 508. Or how about Conmail, Condadon, and Ferrymail, who were killed in 577? Well, we know pretty much nothing about them. Or remember that huge hill fort that we discussed at Cadbury Congressbury? The one that was making jewelry and trading with the Mediterranean? Yeah, well, we really just don't know anything about the political organization of that community either. The thing is that we only know what was recorded. And it's hard to define anything specific about politics from archaeology. So we need some sort of written record. And it doesn't look like many of those communities had strong ties with the Welsh. So the Welsh weren't writing down what was going on with them. And while they might have been writing things down, it doesn't look like that survived the towns, villages, and forts being overrun by the growing Germanic power in the east. 
And I suppose that makes sense. If you're a Germanic king and want to impose your rule over new territories, you don't want a bunch of stuff reminding the people that they had kings and independence before you and your family came along and, you know, killed them. So maybe stamping out that history would be the smartest course. And that might have been what happened. But that should give you a pretty rough outline for the kingdoms that were popping up in the Celtic West in the sub-Roman era, and how different their experience was from their neighbors, yet also how similar it was in some ways. And that should give you a working context for what we're going to be talking about later. Now before I sign off, we have listener mail. So the concubinage and apartheid episode really got you all thinking, and I think I got more emails related to that episode than for any other episode I've done. So I picked a couple to answer on the show, since they were pretty interesting. Okay, the first email comes from Dave. And I have to be honest that I've thought about adding to this, but the truth is that he did such a great job, and he even provided citations in his email, that I'm just going to read from what he sent in, because I think you're going to all find it really interesting. So Dave writes, During medieval times, the average farmer had to have been pretty much on the edge of survival. Maybe a single bad harvest away from starvation. Subsistence farming. When the Angles, Saxons, and Jutes arrived, they had to get their land from somewhere. Even those who kept their lands became victims of what you compared to apartheid. And the second-class citizen gets harder treatment that likely meant higher costs overall. And that's where the biology kicks in. The Romano-British population, it seems to me, would have shifted even farther towards the negative, economically, and would have been even more likely to drop below subsistence levels compared with the preferentially treated newcomers. And that always affects children more than the adults. Even now, children growing up in famine conditions have much higher chances of mortality. Even if they don't literally starve to death, they're far more likely to die from infection and illness in general. Kids who do make it to adulthood after surviving famine are more sickly as adults and often have impaired intellectual abilities after the enormous stress of starvation during the developmentally critical times of their childhood. So biologically, the offspring of whatever British families actually did exist would have a biologic survival disadvantage compared with the Anglo-Saxons. The sociologic factors would account for the Anglo-Saxon men fathering more children, and the biologic factors would mean that there were fewer British kids surviving to have kids of their own. Now Dave went on to describe the different kinds of malnutrition, from vitamin deficiency, which can cause pelagria, scurvy, hypothyroidism, and all kinds of awful things, to protein deficiency, which causes huge swollen bellies, among other things, to marasmus, where both calories and protein are lacking, and that leads to emaciated bodies, and then the other effects of malnutrition, such as stunting and wasting. And then he discussed the effects of malnutrition on offspring survival and quoted an abstract in the National Library of Medicine. And I'm going to skip right over the quote and go to Dave's summary because he does a good job of it. So Dave continues. What this means is malnutrition populations in the modern medical era will lose an average of 56% more of their kids than will populations with adequate food. Most of those deaths, 83%, will occur in kids who are moderately malnourished. Most of the deaths are from other diseases, like respiratory illness or diarrhea, which healthier kids can shake off, but which the malnourished kids just can't overcome. Dave then points out studies that have shown that malnutrition has led to externalizing behavior, basically aggression, conduct disorders, defiant, and violent behavior. And again, he provides an excellent summary of the abstracts. Here's what Dave says. 
What this means is that malnourished kids who survive are more likely to have behavior patterns that don't work as effectively in society, and which may leave them prone to getting their heads bashed in, or being discharged from work, or things like that. And that means they are more likely to be malnourished and have malnourished kids. See, I told you it was interesting. And it just goes to show, I have some really cool listeners. Thanks, Dave. And when you look at things like the biologic factors, it really does flesh out some of the cultural issues that were going on in Britain during this period, doesn't it? But I think ultimately the takeaway is, if you're British, you really didn't want to be living in England. It just seemed like bad news. I mean, you have the potential apartheid, and then you have the issue with concubinage, where everybody's getting snapped up left, right, and center. And then on top of that, you're probably malnourished, your kids are going to be malnourished, and it's just not going to go well. All right, well, I found that really interesting, but let's not end on the note of sick, hungry kids. So here's Mark's question. He asks, How do we weigh up the effects on the genetic makeup of Central England due to Anglo-Saxon immigration compared to similar effects to later Danish immigration during the Anglo-Danish period? Do you get what he's asking here? He's basically saying, how do we know the difference between the Anglo-Saxon migration and the Viking migration? Because the Vikings are going to come over with a great heathen army, and they're going to change the genetic composition of the island as well. So he wants to know how you differentiate the two. Well, I might not have done a good job explaining how that study was done. Basically, what they were doing is they were looking at archaeological and skeletal evidence. So they were looking at the first two centuries of the migration period and the skeletal evidence for that. Given that the great heathen army wouldn't arrive for centuries, that allowed them to get a clearer image of the first couple centuries of migration. So the Anglo-Danish period just wasn't coming into effect. Does that make sense? All right, those were excellent emails. And actually, some of the emails that I never got a chance to read on the air were also fantastic. So please keep them coming in. I make sure I write back as often as I can. So if you have any questions or if you have some thoughts on concubinage or the Welsh cast or anything else that you'd like to share with the group, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And with that, we're done. And I dare you to listen to the rest of this and not break out into song. It's alright if you failed. You're only human, and few can resist the sheer cheesy power that is Bonnie Tyler. Welcome to the BHP Pub Quiz. So this is going to be a monthly thing, and I'm going to release it on the last Friday of every month. And actually, I'm going to try and release it early on the last Friday of every month. So that way, if you want to get together and actually do it like a real pub quiz, you can schedule for it. So, last Friday of every month. BHP pub quiz. And I'm going to try and do a mix of old stuff and new stuff, as well as a mix of hard questions and easy questions. So that way you can have some fun and it's challenging, but you also don't feel like I'm beating you about the head and shoulders with really tough esoteric questions. And of course, if you feel like the question should be harder or easier, feel free to get a hold of me. All right, here we go. Question number one Complete the following sentence. Welcome to the British History Podcast. Question number two. What does Theoden translate to in Old English? Question number three. What kingdom did Athelbert rule over? 
Question number four. Where was the handle fastened on Anglo-Saxon shields? Question number five. Were metal helmets common war gear in the early Anglo-Saxon period? Question number six. When you hear this sound, what just happened? Question number seven. What kingdom did Chalin rule over? Question number eight. In Northern cultures, including Anglo-Saxon Britain, what weapon were all free men allowed to carry? Question number nine. Swords in Anglo-Saxon society were A, a utilitarian tool similar to how the Romans approached them, B, a personalized and named implement that had a story of its own, or C, none of the above. The Anglo-Saxons didn't use swords. Question number 10. Once Christianity spread into Anglo-Saxon Britain, what weapons started to vanish from grave goods, probably due to its association with Woden? Question number 11. What did Dr. McDonald say the Anglo-Saxons did better than the Romans and the Normans, and has only been equaled in our modern times? Question number 12. Pattern welding was a technique the Anglo-Saxons used in the creation of some of their steel weapons, and it had two primary benefits. What were those benefits? Question number 13. What was the Anglo-Saxon word for the war band? Question number 14. If you were a warrior who was also a gifted poet in the early Anglo-Saxon period, what god did you have to thank for your gifts? Question number 15. True or false? Warfare among the Anglo-Saxons was a male-only activity. Question number 16. At what age did childhood end and the training for adulthood begin in Anglo-Saxon Britain? Was it A, they didn't have a childhood, they are treated basically like small adults, B, at about the age of 8, or C, at about the age of 14? Question number 17. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, where can you reach me? Question number 18. Who committed the first recorded act of Anglo-Saxon on Anglo-Saxon aggression? Question number 19. In the first century CE, Anglesey was a major religious college. What religion did they practice? Question number 20. Which Welsh tribe fought and defeated a Roman legion? And question number 21. While the eastern part of Britannia was dealing with Saxon and Pictish raiders in the 4th and 5th centuries, who were the Welsh dealing with? Alright, now the upside of this is that I'm not going to have to repeat the questions for you. If some of the questions came too fast or you didn't hear it quite well enough, uh, just rewind and have another listen and then catch back up when we're doing the answers. Alright, do you have all your answers recorded? Okay. Question number one, complete the following sentence. Welcome to the British History Podcast. The answer is 
My name is Jamie. Question number two. What does Theoden translate to in Old English? It translates to king. It also translates to the cool king of Rohan, but that's not in Old English. That's just in Lord of the Rings. Question number three. What kingdom did Athelbert rule over? He ruled over Kent. Question number four. Where was the handle fastened on Anglo-Saxon shields? The handle was in the middle. You know, that's where the boss was, that metal bit. Question number five. Were metal helmets common war gear in the early Anglo-Saxon period? No. No, they were not. Question six. When you hear this sound, what just happened? A son of Ida just died. Question seven. What kingdom did Chalin rule over? He ruled over Wessex. Question number eight. In Northern cultures, including Anglo-Saxon Britain, what weapon were all free men allowed to carry? They were allowed to carry spears. Question number nine. Swords in Anglo-Saxon society were B, a personalized and named implement that had a story of its own. Question 10. Once Christianity spread into Anglo-Saxon Britain, what weapon started to vanish from grave goods, probably due to its association with Woden? Spears. Spears were the weapons of Woden. Question number 11. What did Dr. McDonald say the Anglo-Saxons did better than the Romans and the Normans and has been only equaled in modern times? The quality of their steel. Question number 12. Pattern welding was a technique the Anglo-Saxons used in the creation of some steel weapons and it had two primary benefits. What were those benefits? Well, one, it was pretty because it had that wavy pattern. And two, it wasn't as brittle as other blades because it was using two different kinds of metal twisted together. Question number 13. What was the Anglo-Saxon word for the war band? Werod or Hearthwerod. Question number 14. If you were a warrior who was also a gifted poet in the early Anglo-Saxon period, what god did you have to thank for your gifts? Woden, in both cases. Woden wasn't just a god of death, he was also the god of inspiration, and a bunch of other things for that matter. Question number 15. True or false? Warfare among the Anglo-Saxons was a male-only activity. False. The archaeological and cultural evidence shows that women were involved. Not always, but there were women involved. Question number 16. At what age did childhood end and the training for adulthood begin in Anglo-Saxon Britain? The answer was B, at about the age of 8. If you picked 14, that's understandable, but 14 was when you became a full adult. The actual training for adulthood and the end of childhood was at 8. Question number 17. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, where can you reach me at? You can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Question number 18. Who committed the first recorded act of Anglo-Saxon on Anglo-Saxon aggression? That was Athelbert of Kent when he invaded Wessex. Question number 19. In the first century CE, Anglesey was a major religious college. What religion did they practice? They were Druids, so they practiced Druidism. Question number 20. Which Welsh tribe fought and defeated a Roman legion? That was the Silures. And question number 21. 
While the eastern part of Britannia was dealing with Saxon and Pictish raiders in the 4th and 5th centuries, who were the Welsh dealing with? They were dealing with Irish raiders, and also Pictish raiders, because the Picts were being, you know, Pictish. Okay, well I hope you did well, and more importantly, I hope you had fun. And feel free to let us know how you did. We can be reached, of course, in email. And if you got that question right, you know how to reach me. But we're also on Facebook and Twitter. Just go to facebook.com slash British History or head over to Twitter and search for at British Podcast. And we'll see you next month for the next BHP Pub Quiz. Thanks for listening. <laughs>